0: This is the Big Issues Better Pod, acting today for a better tomorrow.
1: blunt truth is that if you believe in design if you believe it's a powerful force that can change our lives for the better it stands to reason that we need the best possible designers and we're not going to get them if they come from one gender one geography one strand of ethnicity we need design to reflect every area of society if it's going to fulfill its potential and prove its worth
0: During the pandemic, design critic Alice Rosthorne and MoMA curator Paula Antonelli started an interview series on Instagram. They spoke to designers tackling the biggest challenges of our times, from homelessness to climate change and the refugee crisis to racism, misogyny and the collapse of social justice. The series has now become a book, Design Emergency, Building a Better Future. Among those featured in the book is Peter Barber, an architect with a progressive new vision about how to house people making their way out of homelessness. Alice and Peter joined BetterPod this week to discuss design's place in building a better future. I'm Laura Kelly, The Big Issue's Future Generations editor. I'm lucky to lead a diverse bunch of talented young journalists from backgrounds that are traditionally underrepresented in the media.
2: Hi, I'm Sophie Dmitrievich and I'm part of the Future Generations team here at The Big Issue. Coming from an Eastern European background, I felt like I've never really had the privilege or the opportunity to be able to speak on topics that I really felt were interesting. So hopefully today and here with uh, Alice and Peter, I get to share a voice and share a platform where I can help people like me.
0: Sophie, tell me what you took away from the interview.
2: I feel like when people think of design and the world of design, they think of something very flamboyant and in your face. And I feel like Alice and Peter really changed the narrative of that by talking about giving a platform to people who really needed it and turning their passions into something that can help a bigger social cause.
0: Hi, Alice and Peter. Thank you very much for joining Sophie and me on Better Pods. Hi. Hello.
1: Thank you for inviting us.
0: It's great to see you both. As I've been telling you, BetterPod is all about acting today for a better tomorrow. So we were really drawn in by your book, Design Emergency, and its arguments that design can be part of the way that we create a better future. So the first thing I would like to do is a little bit of myth-busting with you both. Alice, in the book, you talk about how you want to change people's minds. So they don't think of design as mere styling. So I'd love to hear, why is design more than pretty pictures and new trainers?
1: Uh, well, because there is much, much more to it um, than that. I mean, undoubtedly, if you ask most people what design is, they would think it was blinged up. Trainers and, and hoodies or overpriced, unbearably ugly hotels. <laughs> um, and it has indeed been responsible for all of those things and many other atrocities over the years, but there's much, much more to it. and. Design, I see it as a a process, as an agent of change, that if it's applied intelligently, sensitively and responsibly, can help to ensure that we respond to changes of any type by interpreting them in ways that will make our lives better rather than worse.
0: And I noticed as well, you talk about how it can really tackle so many of the challenges that we're facing today. I mean, some of the lists that you mentioned includes the climate challenge, the um, challenge around refugees, around racism, misogyny, transphobia, the collapse of social justice, technophobia. Like, we're really talking about all of the, I mean, forgive the um, forgive the phrase, but all of the big issues that, that we have today. And... Um,
1: I mean, is that it, do you really think it's that powerful? Oh, absolutely. And um, I co wrote the book with Paola Antonelli, who's the senior curator of architecture and design at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And we've been friends for years. And during the pandemic, we started a, a, an Instagram research platform called Design Emergency and did weekly IG live interviews with the designers, architects, engineers, coders, and others who so we really felt were at the forefront of practical and radical change, Peter Barber being among them. So we identified those big issues. Um, and obviously the housing crisis and homelessness were key among them. And so we identified the people who we thought would be most interesting and who also critically had practical experience in this. There's an enormous amount of brilliant conceptual and experimental design work. And I personally really enjoy it and consider it very important if you're trying to convince a general audience outside the design community of design's value in tackling complex social political and ecological issues you've got to give them proof and so that's why projects like Peter's social housing programs in London um, are brilliant.
0: Yeah we're really looking forward to digging that into that a little bit more with you Peter but I would also just be interested in kind of general terms. Do you, as a, you know, as someone who works in the field of design, do you feel that sense of responsibility and power in your hands?
3: Um, it's a, it, I do feel a great sense of responsibility. Um, and while Alice was talking, I was trying to think of, a, a, of an example in my world, so architectural world of how design can have a profound, but subtle impact on the way that we uh associated with, with one another. So lots of our projects are on an urban scale, and you know we, we can make a decision as designers whether a city should be gated, segregated, separated according to a social group, racial group, as, as they have been in the past and still are in some parts of the world, or whether our cities and this is a design issue, whether we can make them better integrated, where streets kind of lead one into another, where neighbourhoods are, 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 um, are mixed up um, in terms of, you know, socioeconomic groupings and people are familiar to, with one another's, you know, experience of life. And um, so those two forms, urban forms, uh, are a consequence of... Um, uh, some some designer sitting there deciding what kind of city we should have.
2: As you say in the book, if design is going to tackle the problems of the future, it needs to be more open to people who aren't white, cis men. Do either of you see any green shoots of progress towards that goal?
1: Uh, yes, but not as many as there should be. Um, you know, If you look at design museum collections, flick through design history books, you do see a, a seal, a, a sea of pale cis male faces i mean it's been a man's world for as long as i can remember as have so many other um walks of life particularly ones that exercise power and there has been progress um there's been so more women and um, non-binary people are now practicing as designers there has also been progress in terms of ethnicity um, but nowhere near enough. Um, There is at least a general recognition within professional design and architectural and engineering practice that things have urgently got to change. But I mean, it's an incredibly complex moral and political dilemma. But the blunt truth is that if you believe in design, if you believe it's a powerful force that can change our lives for the better, it stands to reason that we need the best possible designers. And we're not going to get them if they come from one gender one geography, one strand of ethnicity. We need design to reflect every area of society if it's going to fulfil its potential and prove its worth. So in other words, if we're going to get the best possible designers, just as we need the best possible doctors, the best possible builders, the best possible plumbers, they have got to reflect society and come from everywhere. Peter,
0: do you see anything coming through yourself?
3: It's a slow, it's a slow process, and um, you know, I think um, uh, I'm, I'm with everything that Alice said there. Um, but it, it, you know, it comes through sort of education system. I and mean, we, we now, when I studied architecture, um, it was free, and now to become an architect, you know, it's a six-year course. Um, one of the uh, architecture schools in London at the moment it costs thirty thousand pounds a year.
0: Wow! To go there,
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the Bartlett. Uh, uh, more generally, it's ten thousand pounds a year, so over to six. Yeah, of course, it's a, course, um, it's a it, you know, so it's a that's a really big problem, um, and you know, I knew people from. Uh, not wealthy backgrounds who became brilliant architects and leaders in the profession and us are, are still now and those people would not be going into architecture now um, so uh, it's systemic in lots of ways but i think um, free free further education would be a starting point
1: i was just saying peter's absolutely right and You know, if the the sort of financial barriers to even study architecture and indeed design are so high, inevitably, um, it's going to become even less diverse as a profession. But I mean, this is a systemic political problem, because if you look at the finances of architecture, art and design schools in the UK, they're almost entirely dependent on wealthy fee paying foreign students and indeed wealthy fee-paying UK students and so it will take a colossal public investment to reverse that and go back to the more meritocratic um, system that we I don't think we ever had a fully meritocratic further education system I mean I was at university in the late 1970s and the year my year at Cambridge only 10% of us were women They simply hadn't bothered building colleges for women. They were so so dominated by men. Wow. A lot of work to be done in that case. One of the things about running your own Instagram platform and your own book is you get to choose who goes in it. So we have an embarrassment of women Um, in design emergency. There's a clear female majority, but actually there's a logical reason for that, and that's because a lot of these new radical areas of design They're much more open, obviously, to new ideas and experimentation, and because they're not part of the design and architectural establishment, there aren't sort of old boy male gatekeepers there to stop women progressing, and there aren't sort of glass ceilings to be smashed through to get in. So really, the first people in that terrain write the rules themselves, and so that is a way of dispelling all these deeply damaging prejudices.
0: I'm glad to have left that with some hope. And, and I have to say that reading the book did give me that sort of sense of hope. And, and one of the things that did that give me a lot of hope was in Peter, your your project, which I mean, obviously is very close to our hearts here at The Big Issue, because um, a, a lot of what we were set up to to deal with and, uh, and have continued to deal with through all of these years is around homelessness and about housing. And you've, so you did a lot of work for for Camden. Tell us a little bit about that project, just as a as an outline.
3: Most hostels are arranged a bit like hotels, along corridors. It's often rather dark, winding, depressing corridors. The way to your uh, bedroom is like that. But we wondered about the possibility of a of a, of a hostel without corridors, and so we created a sort of quadr quadrangular courtyard, a space which feels kind of protected. Or protective uh, and more than that we encourage Camden to think about the possibility of a productive garden in the middle uh, where the 30 or so people in the hostel could come and work and learn about nutrition and learn about gardening and learn about being working together and not just sitting in their rooms they've employed a, a, a therapeutic horticulturalist who works with the people there we'd like to get local people in very often the hostel is rather an enclosed and and you know, uh, unknown place to the wider community. We'd like to get people in t- to help uh, with that with that project. And um, clearly we've just been in this pandemic, so the, the process has been kind of a bit held up by that. But Camden have confirmed to me that they're really keen to make this happen.
2: Solutions for people facing homelessness is obviously an important part of tackling the housing crisis, but it's clearly much broader than that. I'm 18 and have been discouraged from moving out of my family home in London for uni, purely because I'm too scared to look at the prices for even a small studio flat. What can be done to help people like me?
3: Well, I mean, I can make a start. I mean, there's a couple of things, I think. One is that uh, when I was young, half the population of this country enjoyed the benefits of living in social housing. Half. And now it's, I don't know, is it 10 or 15 percent? so we can we can point at the the loss of social housing as being a significant cause of uh of homelessness the commodification of housing in general um uh it it not being seen as basic infrastructure as i think it was in the aftermath of the second world war when this massive social housing program was you know 150,000 homes a year being built um you know there's nothing like that now and I, and i think you're right sophie to say that um this is a massive issue. You know, us designing a hostel for 50 homeless people is—it's a bit of a band-aid, really, on the problem. Uh, and the danger is, we build a, a nice hostel like that, and it gets publicity, and everybody can sort of pat themselves on the back. But it—it's—it's it's it's scratching the surface. And the other—the other issue, which is becoming um, more and more evident, is the issue of empty homes. So, is it 350,000 empty homes in this country at the moment? Whether it's people buying. Homes and leaving them empty as investments, or whether it's uh, depopulated areas of the Midlands where people have left because there's no work. Um, so it could be argued that there isn't really a housing shortage, but that we need to uh, create an environment. Again, looking at things in a very big, global sense, structural sense, uh, about encouraging people to make it an attractive proposition for people to move back to areas where there's, you know, there's actually tons of housing.
1: I had no idea there were quite so many. Empty homes, but building on that, if you then added the colossal number of empty buildings, if, um, you know, local buying regulations were relaxed, um, and more flexible. And so it was easier to convert commercial leases into either commercial and residential or just residential leases. There's so much that could be done at relatively low cost, but it takes political will to do it. Yeah, political
0: will is um, so often the, the problem there. I know that in the book as well, you mentioned, um, Peter, uh, right to buy, which is something that obviously we at The Big Issue have been talking about for a very long time because it's decimated our supply of um, social housing for such a long time. It's got such a complicated legacy, but I know that you kind of put a lot of the blame for, for our kind of lack of social housing at that at the door of right to buy is that fair
3: yes because uh, because you know when we build a, a social housing scheme within you know three to five years it, it might not be social housing anymore so what's the point of that and uh, you know one can understand the arguments why you know giving people housing discounted but if, if at the end of the day it re- results in the sort of decimation of, of the, the social housing um pot that we have then it's counterproductive
0: coming up where do Alice and Peter find hope? And how can you act for a better future? Did you know you can get The Big Issue's award-winning journalism through your door every week? As a Better Pod listener, you can sign up to get a four-week subscription to the best in news, politics and culture for just £12. And we'll even throw in a stylish tote bag for free. Go to bigissue.com slash bigpod to find out more. I actually would like to to kind of leave a, the main body of our conversation with a question about hope if that's all right with both of you. A lot of our conversation today's been focused on kind of bits where we can find hope but as well as some of our challenges um to that we need to address. And I wondered for for both of you where you're at right now, you, you know, you talked about the desire to create a better world after COVID-19 in the same way as, you know, that they did after the World War II. Do you think that we're we're placed to do that, or do you feel like a little bit more pessimistic that um, that there may be too more too many more challenges in place there?
1: Really, what the pandemic has done is accelerate the massive problems we had before it. You know, an escalating climate emergency, a deepening refugee crisis, ever widening imbalances of of wealth, power, and privilege, the rise of bigotry, Brexit the housing crisis, the homelessness crisis, rising technophobia, abuses of technology. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I'm inherently optimistic, as you may have gathered, and that's one of the reasons I absolutely love researching and writing about design, um, because it is, at its best, developing practical solutions to these massive problems. And so, as a human being, I refuse to accept defeat and, and not bother and and give up and um i'm so glad you said that reading design emergency gave you calls for hope because that's precisely why we wrote it we wanted to convey our enthusiasm our optimism also the realism i mean we talk a lot in the book about mistakes people have made insuperable problems they've encountered and that's often the most interesting part of the the interviews and critically how they overcame them
3: I mean, I, I share uh, Alice's uh, it, it, uh, sort of optimism uh, uh, partly because I believe in design in the way that she does, but also because I think that as designers or journalists or writers or whatever we are, we're, we're also um, citizens and we we live in a democracy and we have the power, albeit a, a democracy is struggling in many, many ways, but we do have, you know, the ballot box and we do have direct action. Uh, And we do have a media and, you know, as writers, you're able to spread ideas, good ideas around and make people question the the crazy sort of dysfunctional world that they're occupying. We need to remember how to think big and to think structurally and to, uh, it's very easy to get bogged down in the here and now. And so much of what we read about is whether somebody had a Glass of beer at a meeting or something like that, and I think we need to we, we need to uh, politicians need to come up with a vision for where we're going, uh, you know, and and where where politics and uh, design intersect, that's where the, that's that's where we can really make changes and, and improvements and and, and dream.
0: I honestly don't think that the pair of you could have um, finished up our main conversation there with something that was closer to the heart of what BetterPod is all about. So thank you so much for that. We we love to think about those big ideas and really take our, our heads out of the everyday to have those conversations. So before I let you escape, uh, every week uh, we ask our guests the same three questions to help us think about ways we can move to a better future. I know you've given us lots of that already, but Sophie has a few more questions for you. The first one being, what's one bit of advice you wish you'd known earlier?
1: I am going to repeat the best bit of advice that anyone ever gave me. It was in a career crisis and somebody very wise who I respected enormously said, i um, that all you all you should do is do what you think is right and treat everything as a learning experience. He was absolutely right, and I only wish I'd known that years earlier.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure mine would be very different. I think if you have a, a, a somewhere you're trying to get to or an idea that you're trying to enact or, or a, a big a big sort of uh, dream. Then it helps. It's much easier to make small decisions on the way if you if you've got you know you you've got you're looking ahead and up, uh, and and not to get too bogged down in 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 the problems. These are all just things we need to get through and do to get to somewhere better.
1: What's one piece of art that gives you hope for the future? Okay, well I'm going to choose one piece of design, interpreting art in its broadest possible context, and for obvious reasons, recently I've been doing a lot of research into the Ukrainian. Design response to the war, which much as the global design response to COVID-19 in at its best showed design at its most ingenious, resourceful, resilient, optimistic and generous. The Ukrainian design community's response has been absolutely phenomenal at every single level and just reflects the best values of, of Ukraine. And I think has done so much to sort of warm the world's hearts to the nation and its current
3: situation well I, so this is a, a, uh, very different I just discovered a building the other day I, I, I saw it on and uh, it popped up on my Instagram feed and I thought blimey and I thought well that's got to be it's, uh, that's got to be in Italy or it's got to be in France it wasn't it was in Sussex it's a monastery called St Hugh's Charterhouse. And it'd be much better if I had a picture of it, but it's a, a giant uh, quadrangle with uh, little hermitages, little separate monastic cells ranged around this square.
0: We can send our listeners to go and have a little Google to check it out, I'm sure.
3: It just expresses so beautifully the a, a way of living which combines... Um, Pe- people, people's privacy and separation and introverted lives with with a collective.
1: What's one thing our listeners could do today to make a better tomorrow? Oh, believe that there will be a better tomorrow. Because unless we do, it's not going to happen.
3: Yeah, and I, I think also, you know, adding to that, feel empowered, feel that you have got power, you know, whether it's joining a demonstration or, or placing your vote or, or... Yeah, I think... We uh, have sometimes feel helpless and we're not. We absolutely aren't.
0: I think that's a fantastic rallying cry to leave everybody with. Thank you so much again for your time, both of you. It's been, it's been a delight to talk to you. Thanks for listening to BetterPod. If you'd like to support us, please subscribe, leave a review and tell your friends. We're relying on word of mouth to bring people into our conversation and to help us all discover how we can act today for a better tomorrow. You can keep up with all the Big Issues reporting at bigissue.com where you can also discover how to find your local vendor.